From the ruin of our holy father, Saint Benedict, in the prologue, continued. <coughs> we have, therefore, to establish the school of the Lord's service, in the setting forth of which we hope to order nothing that is harsh or rigorous. But, if anything be somewhat strictly laid down, according to the dictates of sound reason, for the amendment of vices, or the preservation of charity, do not therefore fly in dismay from the way of salvation, whose beginning cannot but be straight and difficult. But, as we go forward in our life and in faith, we shall, with hearts enlarged and unspeakable sweetness of love, run in the way of God's commandments, so that, never departing from his guidance, but persevering in the monastery until death, we may by patience, share in the sufferings of Christ, that we may deserve to be partakers of his kingdom. Amen. St. Benedict proposes to establish a Dominici Scola Servizii, a school of the Lord's service. The precise meaning of this phrase has long fascinated monastic philologists. It seems to me that the word scola must be referred back to what St. Benedict says at the beginning of the prologue. Hearken, O my son, to the precepts of thy master, and incline the ear of thine heart. I always hear in a kind of counterpoint to that opening phrase of the Holy Rule, the introduction to the Pater Noster at Holy Mass. Precepti salutabibus moniti et divina institutione formati. I find it this kind of a, a textual counterpoint going on there. Hearken, O my son, to the precepts of thy master, and incline the ear of thine heart. A man comes to the monastery to be schooled in the service of the Lord, and this in the company of others who are like sons to their master, and like brothers, one to another. In chapter 19 of the Discipline of Saying the Divine Office, St. Benedict will use the verb servire in reference to the liturgical worship of God, and specifically in reference to the psalmody. So we have Scola, scola, 
servizi dominici and we have the verb servire Idero semper memores simus quod ait profeta servite domino in timore et iterum salite sapiente let us then ever remember what the prophet said serve the Lord in fear and again sing ye wise moreover in chapter 50 Saint Benedict will refer to the hours of the divine office as the months servitutis pensum obligation of divine service while one can admit of different meanings of the word servitium the internal logic of the holy rule suggests that even here in the prologue when Saint Benedict speaks of the Dominici Scola Servici the school of the Lord's service he is referring to a school of liturgical worship. Will he not say in chapter 23, let nothing then be preferred to the work of God? The word servitium had already in St. Benedict's time taken on the meaning of solemn public worship offered to God. A whole constellation of Greek and Latin words can be linked to St. Benedict's use of servitium. It refers to the Sacra Synaxis, the liturgical assembly, to the cultus Dei, the worship of God, to the Officium Divinum, the divine office, and to the Opus Dei, the work of God. The same word, servitium, can be related to the Greek latreia, which means the service rendered to God, and to liturgia, which means sacred, priestly service to the Lord. St. Benedict's school of the Lord's service is a school, then, of adoration in spirit and in truth. But the hour comes. And now is when the true adorers shall adore the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father also seeks such to adore him. I would refer you to the discourse of Pope Benedict XVI on the occasion of his visit <coughs> of Heiligenkreuz in Austria. On that occasion, he developed uh, this text shall adore the Father in spirit and in truth in relation to the Benedictine life. And uh, he, he made a wonderful um, allusion to the school of the Lord's service as a school of adoration in spirit and in truth. It's a marvelous text, uh, one of the great monastic texts of Pope Benedict XVI. I would refer again in this regard to Dante's evocative phrase in the canto number 20 of the Paradiso. When he speaks, um, he's describing uh, in, in this particular passage in the Paradiso, 
he's describing the cave of St. Peter Damien. St. Peter Damien, the great monastic reformer. And he speaks of the monk as being disposto a sola latria. Disposto, disposed, made over to, dedicated to, a sola latria, to pure latria, to latria alone. The monk wholly given over to pure worship, undiluted latria. I find that a most wonderful phrase. In coming to the school or <coughs> service, a man forsakes every other ambition, every other goal and finality, a sola latria. He comes for the service of the Lord alone, disposto a sola latria. This voluntary renunciation of all that in the eyes of the world, and even in the eyes certain churchmen makes life worth living can be disorienting and even dizzying at times. Why am I here? What am I doing? What have I to show for so many hours spent in praising God? For so many hours in the presence of the silent Host. The candle sheds light at the cost of disappearing the <coughs> flame. Brother Ignatius knows all about that because he looks after the candles and watches them and watches them disappear. The grain of incense gives forth its fragrance at the cost burning itself out on the live coal. Not for nothing is St. John the Baptist, the friend of the bridegroom, the great model of monks. He must increase, but I must decrease. The monk, like St. John the Baptist, is to be both fire and light. Ile era lucerna ardent et lucens, says our Lord. He was a burning and shining light. This the monk does. He burns and he shines by spending himself in the praise and adoration of God without counting the cost and without seeking the human satisfaction that comes from being able to measure and evaluate the worth of his labor in the school of the Lord's service. Pope Pius XI's Apostolic Constitution of July 8, 1924, Umbra while addressed primarily to the Carthusians, was addressed also to all monks who live what the conventional expression is, the contemplative life. And Pius XI affirms the irreplaceable role in the Church of all those who, as the Second Vatican Council says, offer a service, note the use of the word service, that Benedictine word in the prologue, offer a service 
to the divine majesty at once humble and noble within the walls of the monastery. Perfecta Caritatis, Article 9. Pope Pius XI writes, I have a rather extended uh, quotation from Umbratina that I want to, to give you this morning. At some time in the future, I want to go through the whole text with you. Thomas Merton, uh, writing about Umbratina, 
extraordinary letter of Pius XI. In the same letter, Pius XI compares the prayer and penance of monks to Aaron and Hur in Exodus 17, who held aloft the arms of Moses in order that he might intercede whilst Joshua waged battle in the plain below. St. Benedict says that in his school of the Lord's service, there is to be nikil aspero nikil grave, nothing that is harsh, nothing that is rigorous. There is nonetheless an effectively penitential component in our Benedictine life. Certain observances set forth Propter emendationem viciorum per conservationem caritatis, for the amendment of vices and the preservation of charity, and this goes to the heart of what penance is, turn a man from himself to God. That's penance. That which turns a man from himself to God, uh, such Observances open in a man what is closed to grace, restrain in him what is inclined to vice, and render him more and more capax day that is fit to receive God. While we, with benedictine discretion, eschew the more extreme forms of self-denial, the more dramatic, theatrical, extravagant expressions of self-denial. We don't have any stylites here. We don't have anyone sleeping on a bed, I hope, not sleeping on a bed of broken glass and shards. We don't have anyone walking about with pebbles in his shoes, at least not deliberately. <laughs> um, we have, to my knowledge, no one rolling about in the um, in the briars. At least I haven't seen that in my walks about the property. Uh, we embrace, nonetheless, the little way of penance that is daily and hourly fidelity to our conversatio moral, to our manner of life. This implies acts of self-denial that are effective and precious in the sight of God in proportion to their littleness and hiddenness. Gratuitous acts of kindness for the brethren. Little things doing something that a brother forgot to do, even cleaning up after a brother, emptying a bin, these little gratuitous acts that bring us out of ourselves, obedience to the sound of the bell, that, that immediate obedience to the sound of the bell, no one sees that. It's, it's something very ordinary, little, and hidden. Yet, it is 
penance, uh, something, the, 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 the value of it is completely disproportionate uh, to, to, to the action itself. That, that opens oneself to God. Uh, silence. The, uh, on the one hand, rigorous practice of silence, and on the other hand, a very humane, uh, well-tempered practice of silence. So that uh, there is neither exaggeration in one direction, or in the other. Uh, very often novices struggle with finding the balance in these things. Exact fidelity to the Harari. Joyful observance of the little practices that make our life together good and pleasant. As the psalmist says, Eche Abitai Fratres So all of these things constitute uh, the penitential aspect of our life. Uh, and in fact, when uh, Sister Lucia Fatima was questioned with regard to what did our, what our Lady meant uh, in asking for penance, uh, Lucia responded, Our Lady referred to the faithful practice of the duties of one's statement. Very, very interesting response on her part. Um, St. Benedict says, Do not therefore fly and run away in dismay from the way of salvation. Uh, salvation, the way of uh, becoming whole again. The way of repairing the ravages of sin. Whose beginning cannot but be straight, S-T-R, A-I-T, which means narrow, straight and difficult. St. Benedict puts his finger here on the temptation, I suppose, of every novice, which is to run away. Because he says, whose beginning, he pinpoints it, he says, this temptation uh, is in the beginning. To run away in dismay, because one finds the life straight, narrow, confining, and difficult. But then he offers this word of hope and encouragement. But as we go forward in our life and in faith, we shall with hearts enlarged, I talk about this, this Kavak uh, uh, stay of uh, which St. Thomas speaks. Uh, St. Benedict here speaks of the dilation of the heart. The heart becomes more capacious. The heart's Capacity for divine grace is enlarged. And unspeakable sweetness of love run, run in the way of God's commandments. This is Benedictine, I like to call it alacrity. Now, you have to contrast the two things here. Do not therefore fly in dismay from the way of salvation whose beginning cannot but be narrow and difficult. First part. Second part, but as we go forward in our life and in faith, I think the brothers can attest to this. I, I look at I look at Tom Benedict, I look at Tom Finian, for example. Um, things that were difficult, well nigh unbearable three and four years ago, at present 
want to um, accept. And we've discovered that as we go forward in our life and in faith, the things we thought were unbearable and great obstacles, that we've passed through them and we look behind us and we see, I came through that. I came through that. That's what St. Benedict is talking about here. Even in our own short history of this monastery, as I look back uh, over the now five and a half years that we've been here in this house, although just in speaking of this house, I look back and I say, is it possible that we came through that and survived? And then I realize through it all, God was at work enlarging my heart, rendering me uh, more capable of receiving the infusion of divine grace, and he has refined my ability to savor the sweetness of his love. It takes a certain dose of bitterness to make one capable of tasting the sweetness of divine love. St. Benedict concludes the prologue, so that never departing from his guidance, talks about earlier in the prologue that we go forward under the guidance of the gospel and I developed that a few days ago. But persevering in his teaching in the monastery until death. This is a, this is a terrifying thing for some brothers. They read this and they say, oh. But you have to say, I will persevere today. I will persevere today. And if today seems too much, if you say, I, I will not be able to persevere to the vespers, I know it. We'll say, from one hour to the next, I will persevere from crime to terse. I will persevere from terse to sex. I will persevere from sex to no. I will persevere from no to vespers. I will persevere from vespers to common. I will persevere until the first morning light. So, sometimes we are, we are terrified uh, when we look at uh, what lies ahead. It's, it's daunting. But that can be a ploy of the devil to disorient us and to uh, frighten us. And when it happens, you have to say with blessed John Henry Newman, um, one step enough. For me, one step enough for me, and walk the little way with Saint Therese. He says, We may by patience share in the sufferings of Christ. At the end of the prologue, Saint Benedict sums up a monk's participation in the passion of Christ by patience, per patientia, per patientia. Uh, this is the patience, first of all, uh, with, uh, with God. We sometimes want to uh, fit God into our notions of efficiency and time and results. And we become very impatient uh, with uh, the divine uh, timetable. Because the divine 
timetable does not correspond to our limited uh, notions uh, of uh, how and when and in what order things ought to be done. Um, and patience with oneself, patience with one's weaknesses, uh, both of body and soul, and patience with the infirmities of the brethren, patience all around in, in Benedictine life. And this exercise of patience can unite the monk to the passion of the Christ, and in doing this, conform him to uh, the sacred host, that is, to the victim Christ, to the priest who passes. St. Benedict ends, Ut et reino genus meriamur visicus. That we may deserve to be partakers of his kingdom. And he ends with a liturgical word. Amen. Amen. So the last line of the prologue is, is a kind of prayer, isn't it? Uh, and he puts the seal, that heavenly word, Amen on the last word of the prologue, before then, uh, beginning the first chapter.